An ancient Jewish prayer describes the plaintive cry heard on the Day of Atonement, a cry of fear and awe. That prayer, our righteous Messiah has departed from us. We are horror-stricken and have none to justify us. Our iniquities and the yoke of our transgressions he carries, who is wounded because of our transgression. He bears on his shoulders the burden of our sins to find pardon for all of our iniquities. By his stripes we shall be healed. O Eternal One, it is time that thou shouldest create him anew. The scriptures clearly support that such a cry should be linked with the Day of Atonement, the sixth feast of the Lord. Please turn to Leviticus chapter 23 and we'll begin reading with verse 26. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also, on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day. For it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and ye shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month. At even, from even unto even, shall ye celebrate your Sabbath. That's Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 to 32. Among the feasts, the Day of Atonement contains the least joy and happiness. Recall that the Feast of Trumpets began the seventh month. Now, just ten days later, is the Day of Atonement. In modern times, this gap between feasts is called the Ten Days of Awe, a time of spiritual observance to prepare for this feast. I can't overemphasize the sense of awe and fear associated with this feast among even secular Jewish people. No other feast has this feeling for the average Jewish person. Now, back in the times of the temple, only on the Day of Atonement did the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies to offer blood upon the mercy seat. Prior to entering, he prepared himself with seven days of cleansing I've often said he probably looked like a prune with all that washing. But he prepared himself for seven days so that he could enter in a clean spiritual and physical condition. For to enter with an unclean spiritual and physical condition meant death to the high priest. Now, when Israel was in exile in Babylon and without a temple, the Jewish people introduced the kaparot, ceremony, a tradition not supported either by the Talmud or the scriptures. At this traditional ceremony, 
the repentant one waves a fowl over his head three times and proclaims, This is my substitute, my vicarious offering, my atonement. For remember, they had no altar in Babylon to offer any sacrifices for atonement. He would then slaughter and eat the fowl. Now, many believe that on this day God issues his final decree to establish, and I quote, who will live and who will die, who will be serene and who will be disturbed, who will be poor and who will be rich, who will be humbled and who will be exalted. On this day, the people fast and observe five services spanning the entire day. At the conclusion of that day, they sound a shofar, that's a trumpet made from a ram's horn, and they return home to face the coming year, believing that on the Day of Atonement, God declares his judgment and closes the books for the coming year. Although the Bible affirms the solemn nature of the feast, it doesn't support many of these traditions. Biblically, the solemnity of the day comes from the strict restrictions regarding work and the need to afflict the soul. God, indicating the seriousness of the occasion, decrees that anyone who works during this day must die. Further, in Leviticus 23, the term Sabbath of rest, a very rare term, appears in connection with this feast. This phrase, used only six times in the Bible, speaks of the ultimate rest or the ceasing from daily activities of toil and struggle. On this day, Israel offers a kid of goats for a sin offering beside the offering of atonement, according to Numbers 29.11. Leviticus 16 contains most of the instructions regarding the spiritual offerings that include two goats, of which one serves as the sin offering and sheds its blood to cleanse the holy things and the people, according to Leviticus 16, verses 5 and 9. The high priest then takes the blood of the first goat and carries it into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people and for the tabernacle or the temple, according to Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16. The second goat, the scapegoat, makes atonement for the high priest and for his house or his family, Leviticus 16, verse 10. Following the cleansing of the temple and the people, the priest leads the scapegoat into the wilderness and frees it, according to Leviticus 16, 20-23. The Bible says the atonement serves to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. With the close of this solemn day, Israel prepares for the joyous celebration of the next feast that will come in just five days. Now, having this overview of the observance, let us first notice how the Day of Atonement is different from the other six feasts. Number one, it's the only feast that begins at sunset and requires a great fast. Two, there are more detailed instructions for the Day of Atonement than for any other feast. Three, it's a day of holy convocation, a holy gathering of the entire nation of Israel, verse 27. Four, it's a day that focuses on an offering by fire, verse 27. Five, 
we read, Whatsoever soul that does not observe it, observes it carelessly, or works on this day, they shall be cut off from the congregation. That means to be killed. That's verses 29 and 30. 6. As with the Feast of Trumpets, history records no past mountaintop event for the Feast of the Day of Atonement. 7. There is no connection to the agricultural year in this feast, while many of the feasts do connect to the agricultural year. And 8. This feast is declared to be a Sabbath of rest, or literally a Sabbath Sabbath. As with the Feast of Trumpets, we can only conclude that the Day of Atonement must signify a significant future event for the nation of Israel. These many differences brings us to the inevitable conclusion that God has set this feast uniquely apart. Now, I hope you'll recall the three characteristics of a Feast of the Lord. We find that this feast does not recall a past mountaintop historical event for Israel, as do all the feasts. Thus, since it can't recall back to one, this must be prophetic about a future mountaintop event. Now, it does picture a major doctrinal truth, the second characteristic of feasts. That truth is atonement. Since it follows the Feast of Trumpets, also a prophetically unfulfilled feast, we know that in God's plan for history, we are somewhere between Pentecost of Acts 2 and the coming Feast of Trumpets and then the Feast of the Day of Atonement. It is still to be fulfilled for Israel. Let us now look deeper into this unique feast. The unique starting time for this feast sets it apart from all other feasts and is a significant key to understanding the very significance of this unique feast. God instructed Moses to tell the people to begin observing the feast at sunset, the day before the official feast day. For in Leviticus 23, verse 32, we read that in the ninth day of the month at even. Now, although individual families began the Feast of Passover celebration in the evening in their homes at the start of the new day, in other words, they started to observe Passover when after the sun had set. Remember, the Jewish day then begins. And so they observed it on the Feast of Passover, even though it was an evening meal. But the Day of Atonement is different in that the entire nation gathers collectively at the temple at sunset of the ninth day of the month so they can then observe the feast on the tenth. Now, darkness seems fitting for this Day of Atonement. Since this feast isn't a joyful celebration, as I've said, it's, it's a celebration or an observance of awe. This is an extremely serious feast. The cover of darkness is intended to remind the participants of the awfulness of sin in the presence of a holy God. For the Christian, the darkness suggests the spiritual pain and agony that Christ suffered on the cross when darkness shrouded him 
and he cried out to his father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross. Now on the day of the atonement, as the sun sets on the ninth day of the seventh month, the solemnity of the feast engulfs Jewish individuals as well as all the nation of Israel. They begin a total fast, acknowledging God's instructions to afflict your souls. During this time, individuals abstain from food and drink for almost 25 hours. The intensity of the fasting emphasizes the necessary concentration on the serious business of the nation's sins. Key to understanding this affliction is found in the unique, rarely used phrase, Sabbath of rest, or the Shabbat, Sabbathon, in the instructions for this feast. This repetitive expression means Sabbath, Sabbath, in verse 32. It reflects the Hebrew grammatical intensive. In other words, to intensify a term in the Hebrew, you double it. You say, Sabbath, Sabbath. Our English translation here misses the strength and significance of this intensive by using two different words instead of repeating the single word Sabbath. Ours says the Sabbath of rest, but the Hebrew is Sabbath, Sabbath. This particular intensive combination appears only in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus. And in each time, it's in connection with three significant events. It's used with the weekly Sabbath. It is used with the Day of Atonement. And it is used with the seventh year land Sabbath. A proper understanding of the uniqueness of the Day of Atonement requires an understanding of this term Sabbath and of its intensified form that our English Bible merely translates as Sabbath of Rest. The term Sabbath conveys serious overtones to the nation of Israel as well as to an individual Hebrew. The root of Sabbath, Shabbat, means to sever, to end, or to complete, or to cease from. Thus, the seventh day of the week, Sabbath, completes or ends the week as individuals cease or desist from their normal weekly endeavors. The seventh year, land Sabbath, completes or ends the production of the land of its six years, giving it rest for one year. God tells us in Exodus 31 verse 17 that he gave the Sabbath as a sign to Israel. He says, It's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested, or ceased, and was refreshed. Literally, the Sabbath, acting as a signpost, communicates messages from God to Israel. God first used the Sabbath in this way in Genesis 2.2. He continues the application here in Leviticus 23. The use of the feast Sabbath points Israel to a time of ceasing 
from its labors with a resultant rest that has been promised and guaranteed by God in the covenant. The intensive use of the term here in Day of Atonement further emphasizes a necessary element of that rest. That requires complete atonement. Andrew Bonar, a biblical scholar and expert on Leviticus, notes, and I quote, Thus the rest and atonement is equal to the rest that was enjoyed in an unfallen creation. For man can enjoy fellowship with the Creator if atonement could wipe away the uncleanness of sin that separates man from a pure and holy God. Now, to understand the importance of this phrase, Sabbath, Sabbath, recall that Israel's neglect of the Sabbath of rest for the land, the land Sabbath, was one of its greatest national sins. And God says is one of the prime reasons, if not the prime reasons, that resulted in the 70-year Babylonian captivity. That's how serious their neglect of the land Sabbath was. Notice further, it's the individual sins of the people of those days that led to the captivity because it contributed to Israel's collective sins. So individual sins brought together as a nation represented and created the sin of the nation. A sin that necessitated spiritual cleansing for the nation to be brought back to a right relationship before the Lord and then to be able to serve him. The scriptures warned Israel of the dire consequences that would follow if the land did not receive its Sabbath of rest in Leviticus 26, verses 24 and 25. You see, they had to observe it, or God would have to take action. Considering this unique use of the term Sabbath, Sabbath, we conclude that on the Day of Atonement, it must also represent an ending or a completion of the atoning work that only God could accomplish for both the individual, but also for the collective nation of Israel. At this point, we need to carefully define the word atonement, for this word is so often misunderstood or misdefined. As we've just seen, this is a very serious feast and one of major significance to not only the nation of Israel, but also to each of us. Therefore, it's very important to understand the biblical definition of the word atonement. Many believe that atonement is simply means to cover over sins with blood. Well, we need to turn to our Bible to discover the correct meaning of this word and not assume that we already know it simply because we've heard it defined in this way as a covering over many times in our traditional Christian circles. We're going to begin with the Hebrew root word for atonement, kafar. Kafar, which means to make atonement or a reconciliation, to pacify, and then the word that we all struggle with, to make propitiation. So in other words, atonement is defined in the Hebrew 
as a reconciliation, a pacifying. The English words for Day of Atonement are derived from the Hebrew words Yom Kippurim. Now, Kippurim is a plural noun in the Hebrew, not a singular. Kippurim comes from Kafar. Interestingly, both Jewish and Gentile translators render it as a single noun in English, whereas it's plural in the Hebrew. More accurately, Yom Kippurim means Day of Atonements, the plural. Now, some commentators explain this discrepancy of putting the singular instead of plural by suggesting that the translators chose the singular word form to emphasize the unity of the day itself. In other words, it's a single day, an atonement day. However, translating the word in this way, I believe, places emphasis incorrectly. If we look at Leviticus 16 and verse 33, I believe it suggests the reason for the plural word, atonements. For in verse 33 we read, And he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation. And for the altar. And he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. Notice, the scriptural instructions clearly specify five distinct categories that require atonement. Five areas. They are the holy sanctuary, the tabernacle, the altar, the priests, and all the people of the congregation. And this phrase, the people of the congregation, indicates the nation as well as individual Jewish people. Thus, the definition that atonement means the covering over of sins seems to me to be weak when we consider the inanimate objects such as the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the altar. Why would these inanimate objects require forgiveness or a covering over of their sins? How could an inanimate object sin? Unfortunately, most Bible students examine atonement from a purely human perspective and tend to ignore this question that I have. What about inanimate objects? They can't sin, can they? By ignoring this, it alters atonement's purpose and could mislead us with respect to the significance of the Day of Atonement for the Jewish nation. Typically, most theology books focus on atonement from the individual sinner's viewpoint. This view misses a significant aspect of the biblical teaching of this feast. The original language stresses the plural word atonements and the need to apply it to inanimate objects as well as to the priests as a group, the nation as a whole, and to individuals. I believe a correct definition of atonement enables us to understand why even inanimate objects why the priesthood, and why the nation requires atonement. Now, we have to be careful. When we study the scriptures, 
we must always allow the scriptures to guide us to the truth, for the teaching and traditions of men may be wrong. Perhaps phrases we've heard over and over could be wrong. We need to be good Bereans and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Throughout the book of Leviticus, we find a consistent theme, the need for people, places, and things to be cleansed from sin and the taint of sin. As a result of this cleansing through atonement, there can then be a reconciliation between God and the tainted one. In the New Testament, the Greek word for atonement, kaalaga, with its root, katalaso, emphasizes this important aspect of atonement. It defines atonement as a reconciliation of two parties resulting in a restoration to a former state of harmony. Let me say that again. A reconciliation, a bringing together of two parties resulting in a restoration to what they once had was a very harmonious relationship to each other. Thus, a full picture of the process of atonement includes what I call in a series of steps leading to completed atonement. You see, there's an original unity, and I'm going to illustrate that using man. In the garden, Adam and God walked together and talked to each other. They had a total unity, and that's God, what God intended for mankind through all of history. But then, through the sin of Adam and his rebellion against God and God's word, there was an estrangement. The sin separated God from Adam. Because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, they could be reconciled back to God. They could be restored. And in that restored relationship, there is the unity brought forth and the harmony between an individual and God himself. That's the atonement process. Part of that reconciliation, though, requires the cleansing of sins. And therefore, we see both the Old Testament idea that is repeated over and over as the idea of cleansing from the sins with the New Testament emphasis of the reconciliation back to God that will bring us to the harmonious fellowship with God that he always intended for mankind. That fellowship, though, is only possible through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his shedding of his blood, his cleansing us of our sins, and the atonement. I go in much greater detail in my video called The Tumbling L of Tulip under my Calvinism series. If you'll go in and watch that video, you'll see that I spend much more time explaining this process to you, the reconciliation aspect of atonement. In this book of Leviticus, we find an all-encompassing aspect of atonement. Now, according to Lehman Strauss, a biblical scholar who an, was an expert on the feast, he said, and I quote, Before the nation of Israel can enjoy lasting peace and protection, repentance and cleansing from sin are imperative. For this imperative is clearly the defining theme in the book of Leviticus. 
as you read through the book of Leviticus, oh, I know, many of you use it as a way to get to sleep at night, kind of like a sleeping pill. I'll read Leviticus. You fall asleep. I actually find it a very exciting book. But if you were to read Leviticus from beginning to end, keeping in mind atonement and the Day of Atonement, you're going to see that much of Leviticus emphasizes or illustrates to us the need for atonement. And it actually reaches a theological pivot point in chapter 16 of Leviticus. For the entire chapter 16 is devoted solely to atonement. But it builds up. I said this was the pivotal point. It builds up from chapter 10. For in chapter 10, we have the account of Nadab and Abihu and their sin before the altar of the Lord. In the first verse, we read, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein, put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. This is serious. Moses relates us this, issue, this incident to us when he relays God's words then in verse 3. For the Lord speaking in verse 3, Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come near me or nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. When he says sanctified, he means I will be holy in them that come nigh to me. In verses 10 and 11, the Lord indicates the need of cleansing goes well beyond a minor aspect when he gives the reason for cleansing. In verse 10, And that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. And that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord hath spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. From this verse, chapter 10, all the way through to the end of chapter 15 of Leviticus, Moses instructs Israel about the need to cleanse animals, cleanse when there's leprosy, victims, when there's issues of flesh for men and women, all the necessary ways that they must be cleansed physically to reflect the spiritual need of cleansing from sin. Thus, in verse 31 of chapter 15, God really ties it together from Leviticus chapter 10 with the sin of Nadab and Abihu. Because notice here he says that they, have to, they can't defile the, his tabernacle among them. You see, God's tabernacle, or in other words, what God is saying, his dwelling place among his people, for them to come near to him, they must be clean both spiritually and physically, thereby enabling them to be reconciled to God and have, have fellowship with him. So if they want to be close to him, they've got to be careful of how they live their lives. The priests who were to minister in the tabernacle, the animals that were going to be involved and the objects used in worship have to be spiritually clean and physically clean for God to be able to meet with them. 
God's holiness is offended and diminished if an unclean person or thing comes near him. For the people are tainted and God can't be tainted by sin. Because of this, we derive a truth. Sinful men can offend the holiness of God by their sins and its taint. And they cannot approach him in such a state. For man, there is a need of reconciliation. Leviticus 16 gives extensive details for the cleansing of the high priest, for the cleansing of the mercy seat, the cleansing of the holy place, the altar, and the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement. The purpose was to make them holy before a holy God, to make them cleansed so they could approach him. The nation was cleansed so they could draw near to him and, more importantly, so they could serve him. They needed cleansing to be made holy. Thus, the definition of atonement is that cleansing brings reconciliation with God and not simply a covering over of sin. Now, yes, we have to understand where this idea of covering over of sin has come from. In the Old Testament, sins were covered over in this sense that they awaited a thorough cleansing by the blood of the Lamb at Calvary. For without the shedding of the blood, there is no remission of sin. Jesus Christ at the cross shed his blood that now brought atonement or cleansing through his blood. There was no need to cover over waiting for the day of the cross because once the day of the cross had come, the atonement was achieved and now you don't cover over sins, you cleanse sins. Cleansing completely removes all presence of sin. How is the atonement accomplished? We need to understand what it does and how it accomplishes this cleansing. Throughout chapter 16, God makes it clear that sacrificial blood is the only agent capable of providing cleansing. He says in verse 19, And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you, to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Therefore, a better definition of atonement, certainly in New Testament days, must include the process of making an unclean person or object clean, Kadash in the Hebrew. God can never use a tainted person, notice I said tainted person, or object for his service. They first must be cleansed and made holy to serve him. Isaiah understood the principle of spiritual cleanliness when he saw a vision of the Lord sitting upon his throne in heaven. When Isaiah saw it, he came to a full realization of the awfulness of his own sinfulness. And Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, 
because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That's Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. This passage reveals that sin is more than a record of past sinful words, thoughts, and deeds. It also produces an ongoing disqualification for service to the Lord. Hence, an uncleanness in trying to serve the Lord. The yearly Day of Atonement performed this cleansing function for the entire nation of Israel so that they could go on serving the Lord and representing Him to the world. Once each year, on the tenth day of the seventh month, the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies as God had commanded him. We read that he was entered to make an atonement for you to cleanse, to hire you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Leviticus 16, verse 30. The yearly feast temporarily handled the people's sins at the national level. Only the future atonement made by Christ with his own blood would provide permanent cleansing for individuals. Hebrews chapter 9. In order to understand the magnitude of God's atonement, we must first understand the vastness of the gulf that lies between a holy God and sinful man. As a consequence of Adam's single sin, God banished our first parents from Eden, and they were separated from that immediate fellowship of walking with him. Because of this one sin by Adam, all of Adam and Eve's descendants, that's us, are born with a fallen sin nature. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The earth, too, is under the curse of that sin to this day. For one sin, God excluded also Moses from the promised land. For David's one sin, 70,000 men died. For one sin, God struck Elisha's servant with leprosy. For one sin, God ended the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. You see, ongoing sin first caused the nation of Israel to go into exile for 70 years, the sin against the land Sabbath. The Jewish people have been dispersed now throughout the earth for nearly 2,000 years for rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Today, the Reformed nation of Israel it needs spiritual cleansing and rebirth. It's been over 70 years since Israel reformed as a nation, and yet it has not turned back to God for reconciliation and atonement. Oh yes, individual Jewish people have turned to God, have turned to Jesus Christ the Messiah, have received him as their Savior, and they have been restored to their relationship to God. But the nation as a whole has not turned to God. The nation as a whole has not turned to its Messiah. For the nation to be restored spiritually, Israel still needs 
a national atonement. When will Israel's cleansing take place? We don't know when, but we know that, according to the prophet Zechariah, the conditions for that cleansing. The nation of Israel will recognize and cry out to the Messiah when he comes to Israel's rescue at the end of the tribulation. For we read in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and in chapter 13, verse 1, there the astonished people of Israel will recognize Jesus Christ as God, and they shall look upon me, that's Jesus Christ, whom they have pierced over 2,000 years ago. They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day, then, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 12, verses 10 and chapter 13, 1. You see, with that recognition, Israel will be cleansed and God will remove their uncleanness and they'll be ready to serve him throughout the millennium. Now, God also foretold of Israel's future cleansing or atonement in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. And there we read in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. Ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. The word here is the same word to show the results of atonements in Leviticus 16.30. He will cleanse them. And then he goes on to say, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will also save you from all your uncleanness. In the day that I have cleansed you from all your iniquities, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 38. You see that? The day is coming when Israel as a nation will turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior and he will cleanse them. He will atone for them and that will be the day of atonement. Any definition of atonement thus that ignores the need for spiritual cleansing and considers it to be a mere covering over of sin is inadequate and misleading. For Israel, the holy place, its objects, the priesthood, God's chosen people as a nation, they require cleansing in order to approach God and to serve him. For they will serve him during the millennium and on into eternity. Thus, the feast's application to Israel, yes, it's yet future. The day of Israel's cleansing as a nation to serve her God will be the mountaintop event pictured by the feast of the Day of Atonement. Then Israel will know full rest, a Shabbat Shabbathan, a full rest, a ceasing from her struggles, 
involving the world. It will have the peace of the covenant and the spirit dwelling and her relationship with God as she experiences full and complete access to her Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will reign over his beloved nation as she worships and serves him, for she will be reconciled, propitiated, restored to her God. What can we as church-age believers gain spiritually from this new understanding of atonement? How may we apply it to ourselves? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. There we read, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This verse tells us that Christians, like the nation of Israel, collectively form a holy people, a holy people of his. Like Israel in the Old Testament, we have a unique relationship with God, for we are to be the bride of Christ. We are also a royal priesthood, for we may intercede for others at the throne of grace. During this time, the church age, when God has set Israel temporarily aside, we are to represent God and Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. We are to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and his atonement. Now, we once walked in the darkness of sin that was represented on that eve of day of atonement. We were separated from God and needed to be reconciled to him. If you have trusted as Christ, you have responded to the light of the gospel of Christ, our Passover lamb, and we are now ready for effective service to God. Oh, do we still sin? Yeah, unfortunately we do. Therefore, we do need a daily cleansing of the taint that is provided by the atoning blood of Christ. God promises that to us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, we already have a permanent cleansing made possible at the cross when Christ was sacrificed once for all and the reconciliation was accomplished. Yet we still sin and we become spiritually tainted. But when we sin, it's like this taint, this dirt on the outside that needs to be cleansed. But when we pray and confess our sins, God will hear our three prayers and he will cleanse us even of that taint so that we can serve him faithfully and have that close walk with him. And we'll be able to serve him now and the, then in the millennium and in eternity. You see, the Feast of the Day of Atonement opens the door to the millennial kingdom for national Israel, just as individual redemption opens the door to our serving our Lord, a door that brings reconciliation, spiritual cleansing, and fellowship and service with our God. 
For Israel, the feast portrays the future time when God will cleanse the nation and be able to use her again in his service, a reconciliation that will come at the end of the seven-year tribulation and with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth to rule and reign in his millennial kingdom. The spiritual truth to we believers is that the atonement cleanses us for service to our Lord now, having reconciled us to him. If you know the Lord as your Savior, may you fully realize that atonement reconciled you to God, cleansed you from your sins, and enables you to walk with him in true, true fellowship. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, you are presently alienated from God. You can't have fellowship with him. Your sins are keeping you from him. To have the atonement applied to you individually, you must turn to Jesus Christ in true faith by accepting that his substitutionary death on the cross for you cleansed you from your sins. You must accept that by faith that he did that. And then, as you accept his atonement, he will remove the alienation between God and you. If you receive Jesus Christ as Savior by simple faith, believing that He was your substitute, He paid the price, He cleansed you from your sins, then you can have eternal fellowship with God. Now we here at CMI TV, we're here to answer your questions. Send us an email, we'll answer them, and we'll help show you from the Bible how you can truly know the Lord as your Savior. Please contact us for help. Now, please join me in our next video when we will study the seventh great feast yet to come, the Feast of Tabernacles. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll see you either here or in the air.